We are very wealthy people. Unless you chose not to, I would assume that not one of us went to bed last night with an empty stomach. Every one of us made a selection about the clothes we were going to wear today from a substantial collection of clothing. We slept in warm houses, on comfortable beds. We drove here in vehicles, heated if we needed it, and on paved roads as bad as we think they are. We made it here quite easily, didn't we? We are wealthy people. Some years ago, I stayed overnight in a hotel in Mumbai, India. Down the street was a community of people who did not own a single car among them. I don't think there was a bicycle hidden anywhere there either. They walked everywhere that they went. Something else about this community of people, not one of them owned a house, not one of them lived in a house. Not one of them ever slept on a bed. They had little food, and they were so poor that most of them were unclothed. They did not even have clothes to put on their body. They lived as a community, under an overpass, with virtually no earthly possessions, not even clothing. We are very wealthy people. We look at that contrast between us and people living in such a situation. It's not difficult to see when we look at it from that angle. But this massive economic gap between us and such people pales in comparison with the spiritual wealth that we enjoy as a church in contrast to the world that lives in the poverty of sin. Think of it today. We walk into this assembly to gather as the people of God and we come here as those who are forgiven. We live in a state of immeasurable spiritual wealth. What immense privilege to enjoy with the psalmist this sentiment, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What are the worst sins that you've ever committed? We can concentrate on those sins in an ungodly way, in an unhelpful way. But like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we might think on our sins and our worst sins in a constructive and sanctifying way. What are the worst sins that you've committed against a holy God? Think of yourself as the sinner that you are. Then think of this immeasurable worth of being able to say, God has forgiven my sins. I am reconciled to Him. Do we sense the worth and the value of being able to pillow our heads at night and say, I am forgiven? To look ourselves in the mirror and say, with all of my sin, with all of my failure, I am forgiven. You realize how few people in this world enjoy this wealth, this grace from God. Indeed, the very notion that God has forgiven our sins may seem too good to be true. But as we listen anew to God's Word, we are reminded that forgiveness is too good to be anything other than a gift from God. 
So today and over these next few weeks, I'd like to direct our attention to an old theme, a familiar theme, and one in a fallen world that we need to resound over and over again, the theme of forgiveness Today we will labor to understand what God's forgiveness is as we equip ourselves for the challenging work of forgiving others in a fallen world. And there's so much opportunity to do so and so much difficulty and challenge in that process. But the theme of forgiveness we realize and we rejoice as Christians today to understand it runs throughout the entire Bible, doesn't it? The Bible that reflects God's merciful and loving nature as He relates to sinners. This theme is sounded throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 32, as we've just read, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As Isaiah put it in chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Again, the prophet writes in chapter 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Praise God. And we could consider as we look at the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, the ritual cleansing laws, and the like. And know that God is a God who rejoices to forgive sin. But let's turn our attention here to the good news of salvation announced in Jesus Christ, which is, at its core, a message of God's forgiveness. And just for a few moments, let's remind ourselves of this as we look at it from a historical standpoint. Luke chapter 24, if you'll make your way there. In the text of Scripture, Luke chapter 24, we look at the apostolic message of forgiveness and we see immediately upon the death and resurrection of Christ and His ascension that this message of forgiveness is crucial and at the heart and core of what salvation is. After His resurrection, Jesus appeared to a gathering of His disciples Proving that he was alive by eating some broiled fish, he then says to them, Luke 24 and verse 44. Verse 44, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the Old Testament is working prophetically to speak of Christ as Messiah and Savior. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So he lays them out, lays these passages out for the disciples that they would understand how they point to Christ and His salvation. And then he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the message the disciples were to proclaim to the world as Christ's witnesses was, at its core, a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's the message. Verse 47. It was a message of sinners turning from their sin, repentance, 
and to God who forgives then their sins. Now, I don't think that it's a mistake as we come to the book of Acts and the sequel to the book of Luke. Acts chapter 2, if you turn there, as we come to Christ's followers, spirit-baptized during the festival of Pentecost after Christ's ascension, and Peter preaches that first apostolic message to the curious crowd. I don't think that by any means it is a mistake as he comes to the end of that sermon, reaching the climax, laying bare the sin of his hearers, saying that you killed Messiah, the one that God had sent to save. Peter's audience is deeply convicted at that place, and notice what Peter now delivers as he points to them. Verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as we have, as they had received that gift. Notice again the connection, verse 38, Repentance and forgiveness. This links to Luke chapter 24. The apostles will go into the world and will proclaim this message of forgiveness in Christ. Here is the apostle Peter now standing in this first message of the infant church, and he proclaims, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So Jesus sent out his apostles to announce this message of forgiveness. And as time passes, this becomes a very significant theme in the apostles' writings as well. This is their witness. This is the agenda historically. This is what they announce. Let's look then further as we take this down a different track and look at the theology of forgiveness. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1 in order to do this. This is the message these apostles are announcing. Now in Colossians 1, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, we have worked out what forgiveness actually is. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Colossians 1, 13. We'll work our way through this familiar passage, remembering and seeking to discern what forgiveness truly is. He has delivered us, writes Paul, verse 13, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. United by faith to Christ, God redeems us, which is to say He forgives our sins. This word redemption, commonly used of purchasing a slave, purchasing that slave from the current master, Christ redeems us. We were enslaved to sin in a domain of darkness. But we are redeemed. And this is a glorious theme that runs through the Scriptures. Isaiah 64, All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We must be redeemed from this domain of darkness. 
Sin is an enemy. As this works itself out in Scripture, sin is a terminal moral disease that must be healed. It is a putrid defilement that must be washed away. It is an overwhelming burden that must be lifted. It is an impenetrable barrier that must be breached. Sin is an infinite debt that must be paid. It is a dark prison from which we must be freed. It is a slavery from which we must be liberated. Sin is a state of death from which we must be resurrected or enter into eternal death from which there is no escape. Sin is a wicked enemy. And it clings to us. It is the domain into which we are born. It is the domain from which we must be redeemed, bought by the blood of Christ. So united to Christ by repentant faith, we learn here in these two verses that Jesus redeems His people from this domain of darkness and sin, that He resettles us under the domain of His kingdom rule, and He provides forgiveness of our sins. How rich we are. But let's stop at that word forgiveness and look at it a bit more carefully. Let's put it under the microscope. Forgiveness. It's one of several New Testament words translated forgiveness. The the idea of this word is to release or to remit. We sometimes say that we are forgiven people. More accurately, it it is our sins that are forgiven. And you'll see this in the, as you look at the New Testament statements about forgiveness. It's really our sins that are forgiven. That is, our sins are released. They are remitted. They are pardoned. The guilt and obligation attached to them is canceled by God. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The means of forgiveness is what? The way that we are forgiven is through the death of Christ, and the motivation of forgiveness is God's grace. So God is fully just. He pays completely the penalty of sin, and on that basis, by His grace, extends that forgiveness to sinners. Now as Colossians develops, as Paul continues his letter to the church, chapter 2 and verse 13 resounds this theme of forgiveness. Chapter 2 and verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is in the domain of darkness, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So dead in a state of sin, we've been given spiritual life in Christ, separated from God by our sin. Everything that alienates us from God is forgiven. The word translated forgiving here, forgiving us our sins, is a different word than we find in chapter 1 and verse 14. The emphasis of this word runs along the lines of grace. It speaks of undeserved pardon. So God's forgiveness is never earned. It is a gift of His mercy to sinners who repent of their sin. Hear this old truth anew. It is a mercy from God to extend His forgiveness to us. It's not what we earn. It's not what we deserve. But it is His grace to us in Christ. 
to put it a little more graphically of how Christ does this, verse 14 continues, by canceling. He has forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, that is this record of debt, He set aside nailing it to the cross. This record of debt, this list of our violations of God's law, He cancels, that is He expunges, He wipes it out, He washes it away. And he nails it to the cross. The death of Jesus pays the full price of our violations of God's law. It pays it in full. Now let's stop here for a moment. That's what what forgiveness is. It is a pardon from God. It is the remission of sin, the canceling of debt, the covering over of sin in a sense of removing it from us. Our sins are forgiven. But let's ask this question. We have to think clearly on it. Does God forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future? Or does He forgive the sins that are in our rearview mirror when we turn to Christ for salvation? Our past sins are forgiven. If He forgives all of our sins, why does 1 John 1.9 say to believers, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? If he has already forgiven all my sins, why seek his forgiveness? But if God forgives only our past sins when we are saved, does 1 John 1.9 imply that we will go to hell if we die with unconfessed sin? There are many through church history that have believed just this. Many of them waited till their deathbed to get baptized in the hope that they wouldn't have enough time in this life to sin and thus be unforgiven. How do we take this? I hope this graphic is helpful to us to understand there are two aspects of sin, sin's forgiveness. We are born, as this indicates, in a state of sin, guilt. We are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. There is indebtedness that we have to a holy God because of our sin. We live in this domain of darkness. But in that domain of darkness shines the light of Christ. We have the gospel of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, and through faith in Him, we are united to Christ. We have been, through faith, transferred into that realm. I'll ignore this for just a moment, but we have judicial forgiveness and relational forgiveness. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we repent of our sins, we are converted, we come to trust Him. We enter into that realm of forgiveness. We are in Christ now because we have left our sin and God has forgiven our sin. 1 John 1.9, then speaking to believers, says we must confess our sins. And as we do, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. So, as a believer who is now rightly related to Christ, stands in a position of forgiveness, I sin. But when I sin, I don't go outside of Christ. I remain in a state of forgiveness. So this blue realm here, this judicial forgiveness, as it's called here, our standing in forgiveness, my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. 
I will always be seen by Christ. If I have come to saving faith in His work, I will always be seen by Christ as one who is forgiven. My sins have been remitted and covered and pardoned. But, as a believer walking in sin, I walk out of the circle of relational forgiveness and need to reclaim that position, which I do, 1 John 1, 9, by confession. So there is, we mentioned this, I believe, last week, at least in the last few weeks, that as believers we are to live a life of repentance. We come by repentance to trust Christ as Savior, but then as believers, believers continue to live a life in which we confess our sins Coming in and outside of that realm of relational forgiveness, we need to again seek God's forgiveness through confession of our sin, that I am indeed a sinner, where I'm not recognizing, where I have not confessed my sin. If I am genuinely saved, then I remain in Christ. But it is through confession that I come to be restored in my relationship with my Father through confession. As we think on this, and really looking on this graphic at our position in this blue realm of judicial forgiveness, how rich we are. This is to say that once we have become a child of Christ, a child of God through salvation in Christ, we will never be lost again. We stand forgiven before the Lord. How rich we are, and how rich we are, and how merciful is our Father to welcome our prayers of confession on a moment-by-moment basis, forgiving us over and over again as we come back to Him and admit our wrong. If we begin now to truly grasp grasp the horror of our sin, if we truly grasp the desperation of our state of alienation from God, we cannot help but marvel at the wonder of forgiveness. We cannot help but come and worship together as God's people. To enter into assembly together is to announce we stand as the most wealthy of people. We have been forgiven. We come together rejoicing that our sins have been washed away. But what is more, if we truly grasp this, then it follows that granting forgiveness to others will characterize our relationships. Sinning against my Father, confessing my sin, and receiving again His forgiveness within the overall state of forgiveness is a way of life for me as a believer in Christ. I know what it means to say I was wrong, I have sinned, and to receive the forgiveness of God day after day after day. This is the grace in which we live. And now if I really live in that realm, then I'm going to live a life of forgiveness as I relate to others. And that flows very naturally through this same book. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. I will just call it a statistical anomaly, but an interesting 113, 2.13, 3.13. We won't make anything more of it than that, but it might be an easy way just to remember that. 
3.13 says what? Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgive not God, but forgive one another in our relationship with each other. Now here again is that second word, Charismai, this word means to, to, is related to the word grace. It's forgiveness is not earned, we're reminded again. It flows from God's kindness to sinners. In Ephesians 4, Paul puts it this way, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So Christ's forgiveness of us is the motivation for our forgiveness of others. Now, it may be helpful at this place to realize that we have then two aspects of forgiveness. And we'll build on this more as the series unfolds. But we have what might be called, and maybe most helpfully called, vertical forgiveness. The forgiveness of God toward us as sinners. And that's where we've emphasized the matters today, where we have settled our attention. But God's forgiveness, God's forgiveness, we understand, is just He does not sweep sins under the carpet, as we say. This forgiveness is accomplished by, and it is rooted in, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from the work of Christ paying the penalty of sin, we would have no forgiveness. It's just, thoroughly just. It is also complete and eternal. It's not something that may be lost, It's not something that will need to be bolstered someday if we really sin against God in a particularly bad way. It is complete and it is eternal. It is willingly given. God's grace, He does not, as we put the whole Bible together, God does not extend forgiveness grudgingly. He grants it willingly, freely. You get the sense that God rejoices to forgive sinners who come to Him in repentant faith. And, indeed, His forgiveness is contingent upon repentance. As people turn from their sin and seek Him, asking for forgiveness, that forgiveness is granted willingly, wonderfully. Vertical forgiveness. And all is based upon how God forgives There is then, secondly, horizontal forgiveness. That is our forgiveness of one another, which is grounded in God's forgiveness of us, of course, but it is a forgiveness we need to see uniquely, but also then need to apply faithfully as those who have been forgiven. So as we pause today and think on this great theme, we ask the question, do we really realize how rich we are? What it means to be at peace in our soul, that I have been forgiven. We have the privilege to pillow our head in that assurance each night and to live each day in that confidence. It raises the question then for the believer, is there a pattern of sin in your life that needs to be removed? Seek the forgiveness of God. We're called again to consider repentance As I ask that question, what is the greatest sin that you've committed against God? Maybe that would brought up something immediate, something right now, something in which you're entrenched. You know the beauty of the forgiveness of God 
Enter into it by leaving your sin today. Seek help, seek counsel, seek aid, but seek Christ above all and leave your sin behind. Then we ask as believers, do we see it? Do we value it? Are we caught in sin now so we're spurning this forgiveness at the moment? And then thirdly, are we living a life of forgiveness? Do we graciously remit and cancel the sin of others against us as an extension of praise to the God who cancels the debt of our sin? We're going to talk through how to do that and how not to do that by God's grace in the weeks to come. But are we known as one who freely and willingly forgives? And I may speak to someone here. Indeed, I'd ask the question to each one of us, do you have confidence that you are forgiven by God? Do you know, in fact, that you leave this place today forgiven? Please know as we look at the forgiveness of God, you cannot earn it. You cannot add to the forgiveness. Contribute with what God has done to make it happen. You cannot continue to cling to your sin as if you could just take a ticket to heaven from God, a ticket saying I'm forgiven, and just continue to live as you are in the domain of darkness. No, we must turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in the death of Jesus Christ who bore the penalty of our sin. Our forgiveness was bought at an immense price. Christ took that penalty and died in our place, bearing God's wrath against sinners, rising from the dead in victory over sin and death. It's in that that we must find forgiveness and in that alone. We can sing as we did earlier this morning, all my sins have been forgiven. God is merciful to me. We should recognize that. If you say, I can't sing that song with joy, I'm really not sure. I would implore you to be reconciled to God, to seek His face, the forgiveness that He provides, not as you prepare yourself to be someone who's acceptable to God, but as you acknowledge who you are as a sinner and embrace the free gift of His mercy. What a joy is ours to be able to say these words, all, all my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Let's bow. We thank you, Father, for what you have done. We praise you for your mercies to us in Christ. I plead in behalf of anyone who may be among us that is unforgiven and pray, Father, for those who have been forgiven that we may rejoice in this forgiveness. Teach us then how to forgive others, but may we start where we need to start and realize that we are immeasurably and eternally rich people. We praise you in the name of our Savior who laid down his life so that by his blood we could be forgiven. Amen.